Well, it's not, the, not that unusual in a Lord's Supper service that we take our sermon passage from wherever we've been in our Sunday morning series uh, in order that we might dig a little bit deeper, that we might pick at something a little bit more so that we might maybe ask a question that couldn't get answered or asked in, in a Sunday morning. And I'd like to do that again tonight. Asher did an excellent job of leading us through Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 on Sunday. But tonight I want to take just a handful of those verses already covered at the end of Ecclesiastes 5 and the beginning of Ecclesiastes 7, which again address God's simple gifts of life and the enjoyment of God's simple gifts in this life. But particularly in this passage, they speak of God's power, power to enjoy God's gifts. It's a peculiar little phrase. It's used positively at the end of chapter 5, where to some people, God gives power to enjoy his gifts. And it's used negatively at the beginning of chapter 6, where for some people, God does not give them the power to enjoy simple gifts. So let me read our verses for us for tonight, starting in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 18, and we'll read to verse 6 of chapter 6. Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and it goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. It's a peculiar phrase, isn't it? Chapter 5, verse 19, God has given the power to enjoy possessions and food and drink. Chapter 6, verse 2, he does not give some the power to enjoy those things. Why is that a peculiar phrase? Why do I say that? Well, I don't know of another place in Scripture that it's put quite like this. There are other places in Scripture that tell us that God gives gifts for us to enjoy, like 1 Timothy 6. 
But none, to my knowledge, speak of a God-given power to enjoy his gifts. And no passage, to my knowledge, distinguishes between those who have this power and some who don't. So tonight I'd like us to do something a little unusual. I'd like us to come to these verses in Ecclesiastes 5 and 6 with our curiosity caps on. And we'll go digging around all over the Bible to see what light we can shed on these peculiar verses. And what I hope to do at the end is, is construct a theology of this thing of the power to enjoy God's gifts. It's a little bit risky because I suppose it's not a full theology of the power to enjoy God's gifts because that would take more than we have this evening. So I can imagine some people thinking, yeah, what about, it? we won't maybe go there. Or, but, but wouldn't that then lead us down that wrong path? Well, we might not cover that. But we'll try as best we can in the short time we have to construct a theology of this thing, of the power to enjoy God's gifts. Let me ask and try to answer a half dozen questions. Like number one, where do good gifts come from? Where do good gifts come from? Well, this passage says they come from God. Hard work and talent and personal connections and opportunities, maybe legitimate explanations on one level for, for why one person has these assets or these possessions. But ultimately, at the highest level, God is the ultimate determiner of what we have. He's sovereign over everything, not least what we have. Job said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Psalms say he makes rich and he makes poor. First Samuel 2, he raises up and he makes low. Or James 1.17, every good and perfect gift, every one of them comes from God. Further, these gifts are for our enjoyment. When God made all that he made in Genesis 1 and 2, he declared that it was all very good. And this wasn't him congratulating himself. It wasn't a compliment meant to just please him. Yes, he was pleased in his work, rightly so. But what he made was very good. It was very pleasant. And it was a pleasing thing to that very first couple to be there on that scene. The garden was lush. Eve was beautiful. Adam was impressed. The food tasted good. God made us to enjoy things. That universal impulse for enjoyment that's in human beings, it's not in itself sinful. In fact, it's actually a reflection of God. It's part of being made in his image. God makes things and enjoys things. He sustains things and enjoys things. He possesses things and he enjoys those things. We get this from God who made us in this way to be like him to enjoy things. So it is profoundly dumb and futile when people try to pretend and live like 
They weren't made for enjoyment. Asceticism, it's called. Denial of pleasures. It's dealt with in Colossians. Colossians says that that has the appearance of godliness, but it lacks all power. It has no power. It doesn't change people. No, we were made to enjoy God, yes, but we were also made to enjoy God in part through his creation. Now, we'll talk about how that can go wrong in just a minute. But we must state it as a principle first that good gifts come from God who sovereignly gives to his creatures things to enjoy. And we can take this up a notch even further. He has been abundant in his creation, hasn't he? He has been superfluous. I often say creation shows God's superfluous glory. He didn't need to put a glowing fish in the bottom of the ocean that no one would ever see until, say, 20 years ago. He didn't need to make black holes that no one would know about until a generation ago. He didn't need to make the infinite combination of foods. I mean, the food channel is screaming the glory of God because he didn't give us three rations like you might get in the military, and maybe you can get creative to make six or seven different meals, but people are still making up meals. That's crazy, and they're getting better. I mean, God didn't need to make our Sandia Mountains glow pink when the sun sets. He didn't need to make babies so squeezable, but he did. Spurgeon puts it better than I could. He could have made everything we see an eyesore. He could have made everything we hear a discord. He could have made everything we smell a stench. Everything we taste bitter. Everything we touched a prick. But oh, he didn't. He didn't. Remember Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day, it's pouring out speech. Night to night is revealing knowledge or information. There is no speech, there's no language, nor there words where his voice isn't heard. In fact, just take the example of the sun. The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber like a strong man. It runs its course with joy. God's creation is brimming. It's overflowing with abundant glory and beauty and splendor and wonder. Second question. Why do we need power to enjoy this stuff? Why do we need power to enjoy these things? Again, remember, Ecclesiastes 6 said, said that some people lack the power to enjoy God's gifts, even when God has given them everything, even when they lack nothing that they might desire, even if metaphorically they had 100 a, a kids or lived 2,000 years. If God doesn't give them the power to enjoy those gifts, they don't enjoy those gifts. Ecclesiastes 5 says God has to give the power to enjoy his gifts. But why is this? Well, because starting with Adam and Eve, we've all gone astray. 
We've all turned the creator, creation, order of things upside down. It was in Genesis 3 when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes, and she thought it could make one wise, then she took the fruit and ate. It was because the serpent told her, you eat of that tree, God says not to, but if you eat of it, you will be like God. She was replacing God. Romans 1 talks about this, where humanity exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal things, man and birds and animals. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Everything's gotten flipped upside down ever since the fall, ever since that first sin. And so every one of us now are born to this world looking for love in all the wrong places. And this makes us frustrated and miserable. So look at our passage again. Look at Ecclesiastes 6.1. This lies heavy on mankind. Or chapter 6, verse 3. His soul is not satisfied. Or verse 6. Yet he enjoys no good thing. We live in the wealthiest society that humanity has ever known. And we are possibly just as miserable and messed up and frustrated as any society that's come before us. We don't need God to give us more gifts, more entertainment. We need something. We need a key. We need a key to unlock the door. We need a power that opens things up. We need a power that will that will move away our misery of sin-bent, upside-down living. And without this power, we're not only stuck in sin as we try to make a God out of things that are not gods, but we are endlessly unsatisfied and frustrated. Take a hammer. A hammer is a good thing. Imagine trying to use a hammer on too many things and for too many things. I mean, just get ridiculous. I love my hammer. I use it for everything. I use it as a spoon for applesauce. <laughs> and I make a mess. Oh, this hammer, I, I, I use it to clean my back in the shower and I put soap on one end, but sometimes the other end gouges my back. And, you know, I, I use this hammer as a pillow, or I use this hammer to do this or to do that. You can imagine just how many senseless, how many silly ideas we could come up with in the overuse of a hammer. But when a hammer does what it's supposed to do, it does it right, and it's nice. When it drives a nail with one hit, that hammer worked, and I'm glad I have that hammer. I got my favorite hammer. It's not as heavy as this other hammer I have. It's this, this hammer I've had for a long time. I got it right before we were married. It's driven a lot of nails. It works real well. I know the weight. I like when that hammer does what it's supposed to do, and I shouldn't try to make that hammer do things it's not supposed to do. God's gifts aren't for everything. 
They're for some things, but they're not God. They're not ultimate. They will not bear that weight. They don't do everything. Third question, what is this power to enjoy God's gifts? I'll just answer this quickly. What is the power spoken of in these verses to enjoy God's gifts? Well, I don't know exactly. I can tell you what the Hebrew word means, though. It's a rare Hebrew word. It's only used six or seven times in the whole Bible. It's used sometimes of when one people group overtake or domineer another people group. That's power. Uh, Iniquity is sometimes said to have this. It has dominion over people. It means control. It means power, mastery, ability. It can also mean right. Like someone has the right to do this or that. So what we need is a power. We need a renewed right to enjoy God's creation. We need a newfound ability or strength to enjoy God's creation. And when we have this, creation then won't control us, like Romans 1 speaks of. But we control it. We use it as God intends for us to use it, and we enjoy it. All that is a gift from God. Fourth question. Where do we get this power? Well, Ecclesiastes doesn't tell us much. It tells us we get it from God. It's God-given. The Psalms tell us that it's actually in God himself. Like Psalm 1611, in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is our delight. Delight yourself in the Lord, Psalm 37, verse 4. Right? So Psalms would tell us it's not just God given, it's God himself that is the highest and final and ultimate joy. According to John's gospel in the New Testament, it's specifically in Jesus Christ. It's focused on him. It it has to run through him. Ecclesiastes, when it says power to enjoy, isn't talking about Jesus. We don't want to go that far. But because there's this thing called progressive revelation, God didn't reveal all his plan at once. Ecclesiastes lays out a principle that there's a power to enjoy God's gifts. And then some thousand years later, some thousands of years later, sorry, less than a thousand years, but hundreds of years later, Jesus comes along and he says things like this. Would you, would you turn to John 4? Let's look at some passages in John where Jesus shows us that he's not only salvation, But he's also satisfaction. So John 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Look at verse 10. After some dialogue, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Living water. So a little more dialogue. Go to verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water in this well right in front of you will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to 
eternal life. Jesus is living water that satisfies, that quenches. He's speaking in metaphorical terms here. Look at chapter 6 of John where he switches metaphors. Now he's going to talk about bread and food. Verse 27, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Look at verse 35 of that chapter. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Or skip down to verse 49. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus goes back to the metaphor of water in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living waters, referring to the Spirit. The Spirit, which produces the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy. Jesus came to, to give us life and life more abundantly, he says in John 10. Now, we've got to make this connection organically and naturally. We don't want to say that Jesus... Uh, came to die simply that we might enjoy God's good gifts. When he was talking about water or bread, he wasn't saying, I have secret bread that actually fills you up and you don't have to eat again, but you can eat again if you want it to taste good. And, no, he's not talking about that. He's not talking about water that fully quenches and, and then you never drink again. He's not talking in physical terms. And that's eventually where we're going, Right? That's where we've been in Ecclesiastes, eating, drinking, working, enjoying all that to the glory of God. But though Jesus is the satisfaction we need most, now that he has come, now that we are forgiven, now that we have tasted and seen that he is good, now that we know that he is ultimately all that we need, God has given us himself in Jesus Christ. He's sufficient, yes. Having said all that, our relationship to physical things shouldn't diminish, disappear, or become deflated. Let me illustrate the tension of this by quoting two different hymns, two pretty different hymns. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. Is that true? Yes, there are Bible verses for that. We won't look at them tonight. 
This is also true from another hymn. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Which hymn is right? Well, they're both right. But even with that first one, we could reword it. It could be a different kind of hymn. One that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely bright in light of his glory and grace. I think we have to conclude something like that because of how the New Testament in light of God's grace in Jesus Christ, speaks of everyday gifts of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or 1 Timothy 4, listen to this. Where Paul says that uh, in later times there will be some false teachers and some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. What are they going to teach? Well, they will forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, conversion transforms our view of things and hence our enjoyment of them. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Let me just outline some of this in 1 Timothy 4. Recognize that gifts are from God. Receive them with thanksgiving, knowing they are sanctified, it says here, by the word and by prayer. I think the word here is God's word, maybe the first word when he declared that it was all very good, or any other part of scripture that declares God's creation is good. And prayer is our recognition of that. Prayer is us acknowledging before God, you made this good, this food that's before us, you made this, you gave it, it is good, you are good, we thank you for it. Or listen to 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, Paul says to Timothy, charge them not to be haughty, that's a bad use of riches, nor to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Those who are rich are to do good and be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of which is that which is truly life. But in the process of taking hold of that which is truly life and in the process of, of being gracious, and generous and ready to share with your riches. And in the process of not trusting your riches or not loving your riches, right there in the middle, we just have this little powerful phrase, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. This is written to a gospel preacher who's ministering to gospel saints. 
in light of the gospel, we can enjoy God's gifts. It's also right in Ecclesiastes, if we sort of take a sneak peek. Fast forward to chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes. You probably already know that there are several uh, rejoicing sections, right? Enjoyment sections of Ecclesiastes. We're in one this evening. We'll get to one, which is probably the clearest and most helpful, in chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Acceptance with God changes everything. Without God, all the wealth, all the possessions, all the length of life, and all the children you could ever want, it's heavy on mankind. It's vanity, it's futile, it's nothingness. But when we're right with God, when we're approved by God, which according to the New Testament is only through Jesus, only through faith, then you can give yourself over to joyful bread and merry wine and hard work and smiles at the end of the day. A fifth question. How do we put this power to work practically? How do we put it to work practically? 1 Timothy 4 already gave us something along the lines of practical, practical principles. Recognize God's gifts as from him. Receive them with thanksgiving. Know that they're sanctified with the word of God and prayer, but let's get more practical. What does that look like? And what does 1 Timothy 4 really mean? What's it getting at? A couple of options in the extremes. One might ask, is 1 Timothy 4 saying we should pray before our meals, we should give thanks to God for our meals, and then just try our best to be as happy as we can in the rest of the mealtime? Or the other extreme is 1 Timothy 4 saying God's gifts can only be enjoyed as long as mealtime is basically a worship service. Now, I don't think any of us are in either of those extremes, but I think almost all of us lean towards one more than the other. I suspect either... Many of us are basically no better than the world and no basically better than we were before we got saved. We just, we just have guilt to say a little prayer before we put that food in our mouth. We might even make up rules about, you know, if it costs this much, you don't have to pray. If it costs that much, then you got to pray for it. Come on, who has a rule like that, right, you know? The salad before the meal, now nah, you don't have to pray for that at a restaurant, but once the steak comes, you, you got to pray for that. But then, but then we're just left to our own and to our own abilities as far as whether it's an enjoyable meal. Or maybe, maybe you lean towards this end that you're so pious. Uh, or you think you failed at mealtime unless the neighbor's been converted, three prayers have been said, the doxology was sung, and two of your kids have committed to go to the mission field. And you think, <laughs> we had dinner. We had like an Ecclesiastes dinner, finally. 
There was peace and smiles and laughter. <laughs> but of course, only laughter about good and, and very noble and pure things. You see what I'm getting at? How do we actually enjoy God's gifts to his glory? What's the relationship between God and gifts? When we're enjoying gifts, must we focus on God and focus on him completely? And if so, do we still enjoy the gift? I, I wonder if this topic, this thing, is a bit like defining the Trinity. You might know that theologians over the years have found it sometimes easier to say what the Trinity is not like rather than what the Trinity is like. You sort of clean the brush away when you talk about what it's not like. And we might want to do that with this topic of that power to enjoy God's good gifts. Let me try. Here's some things that can't be true. It can't be true that we're simply waiting for God to zap our meals or any enjoyment with joy. So, well, that's, you just wait. You just sit there. It's, God's got to give the power. I don't have the power. He's got to give it. We'll see if it comes tonight. That can't be true. It can't be true, on the other hand, that it's all in your own strength to muster up joy in everyday gifts. You can't grit and enjoy dinner. It can't be true that God intends our meals or other good gifts to become something other than enjoyment. God is not like a parent who gives a great Christmas present, but then expects his child on Christmas Day to not play with that present, but simply to sit on dad's lap and tell dad how good he is and how much he likes the toy that he can't play with. God is not like that. God's gifts are to be enjoyed. That's what this says. It can't be true that God wants us, on the other hand, to enjoy his gifts in such a way that we don't remember the giver anymore. That the, that the thing enjoyed is the God in the picture. It can't be true. It can't be true that God's graciousness to you is intended for you to hoard it and hoard it and hoard it. Oh, that's dangerous for rich people to hoard and to not share. It can't be true that, well, let me just put it this way. It's not likely that we're getting these things right very often. We're probably off here, then off there, leaning this way, then leaning that way. But even that can't lead us to a frozen, morbid introspection where improvement and not enjoyment is the name of the game. You see what I'm after? We have to enjoy God and his gifts. And we got to get serious about it. And not so serious about it that we're not having fun with it. This is tricky stuff. On the one hand, may God give us wisdom with this tricky business of dealing with God and his gifts. 
Jeremy Taylor said, God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy in him. I believe that's true. This is serious business. And yet, you know what? Maybe we should just get after it and laugh and enjoy. Not just God, but also his gifts. Not gifts as an end in themselves, but not merely as welcome mats to religious exercises. God has made things taste good for our enjoyment and for his glory. One last question. What does any of this have to do with the Lord's Supper? (laughs) Well, here we are, embodied souls, physically together, having just shared pizzas together, if you were with us at our dinner before this. We've sung melodies and harmonies of truth together. Soon we will partake of real bread. Actually, it isn't real bread. It's gluten-free bread. But you know what I mean. It's physical. It's a sponge-like substance that resembles bread. Let's just call it bread. Real juice. These things aren't the real body of Jesus and the real blood of Jesus, but they do intend to emblemize those very things. They portray his real body and his real blood. That means that when God decided to redeem humanity, he didn't make up a plan to get us out of our physicality to take us to a spiritual, disembodied, celestial world. Just the opposite, he entered our physical world. Jesus became a man who ate, who tasted, who touched, who smelled. He wasn't just one of us. He was the perfect man, the true and better Adam, who didn't turn God's creation upside down like Adam did in order to get his but he turned creation right side up by refusing sin and taking the place of sinners and dying in our place. He died on the cross for us and for our sins. And his resurrection proved that he is now eternally committed to this physical world and to these physical people. He was raised bodily. And he walked around after that. And you know what he did? He ate. Isn't it great that the resurrected Jesus showed up to his disciples and said, you guys got any fish? I mean, don't you love that? I hope you have a place for that in your theology. Jesus was hungry and wanted some fish. And before they were going to do much talking, someone get the guy some fish. That's our Savior. He ate. 2,000 years later, and he still, he provides, provides meals, meal after meal, everyday meals, hundreds and thousands of them. And he's given us this little meal as well, this physical bread 
and juice for remembrance of him. To not only remind us that he died, but to remind us that though he's not now with us, his spirit is with us. And that spirit is a token and a down payment that Jesus will come again bodily and we will eat with him and with each other forever and ever and we will enjoy it. <laughs> Finally, heaven and earth will be one. Finally, we won't be distracted or find it difficult which track to engage you know, the here and now with the food in front of me, with the God up there in heaven who is eternal. Oh, heaven and earth will be one in all the right and glorious ways. And until then, we get to practice. I had that in my notes. Asher said we're here tonight to practice. He said that earlier in our service, and yeah, I already had that written down. Until the Lord comes back again, we get to practice. And every meal, in a sense, is like that. But this one is special with even added significance and more profound joy.